welcome to our podcast on mass violence planning. My name is Diane Alexander, and I am the Senior Manager in Victim Services at ICF. And I currently focus my work on managing support to communities that have experienced a mass violence incident and helping communities plan for how they will respond to a mass violence incident. Joining me today are Victoria Shelton and Tara Hughes. Victoria is currently a project manager in ICF with the Office for Victims of Crime Training and Technical Assistance Center. In her role, she supports consultants responding to communities impacted by incidents of mass violence. And prior to joining ICF, Victoria worked in a state victim service program where she collaborated with other stakeholders in developing and implementing victim assistance protocols for incidents of mass violence and terrorism within the Pennsylvania State Emergency Management Plan. As the primary point of contact for the state's victim services crisis intervention team, Victoria assessed crisis response needs of communities impacted by mass violence and criminal activities, developed intervention plans with community leaders, and monitored deployment activities of the state crisis intervention team. Tara is a subject matter expert in mass violence response, working directly with victims and families to ensure comprehensive care. Currently, she is the project director of the Improving Community Preparedness to Assist Victims of Mass Violence and Domestic Terrorism Training and Technical Assistance Project, and she oversees work with communities to plan for mass violence response. She has extensive experience working in mass violence casualty incidents with a focus on violence that affects large numbers of people and whole communities. Tara has responded to many different incidents, including the crash of Colgan Air Flight 3407, the Haitian earthquake, the Newtown, Connecticut Sandy Hook school shooting, the Boston Marathon bombing, Orlando uh, Pulse nightclub shooting, and the Route 91 Harvest Mes Festival shooting in Las Vegas. Her current uh, work in long-term recovery has included the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, Virginia Beach municipal workplace shooting, and the Gilroy California Garlic Festival. Today, we are going to talk about the importance of planning for a mass violence incident. We've seen an increase in the number of mass violence incidents over the last several years, and while there were fewer incidents during the pandemic, primarily due to the lockdown of communities, it didn't take long after the lockdown ended for incidents of mass violence to return to our communities. We know that each incident will reveal the negative ramifications of not planning, Primary among those issues is the confusion and possible delay in establishing services to victims. And we know that the greatest benefit to planning is that it will minimize the chaos of the incident for everyone. Through the planning process, partnerships are established with key stakeholders, and that reduces the chaos in the initial response and may increase collaboration in, to address other community issues uh, as time goes on. Today, we're going to touch on key elements of planning and provide you with resources for your planning efforts. Let's start with Victoria. Victoria, why don't you uh, get us started by telling us about the Office for Victims of Crime and then talk a little bit about how we define victims and OVC's missions uh, to care for them. Thanks, Diane. So um, when we're talking about uh, the Office for Victims of Crime, which we refer to as OVC, their mission is broadly to enhance the nation's capacity to assist crime victims and to provide leadership um, in changing attitudes, policies, and practices in ways that will promote justice and healing for all victims. Um, and what that essentially means is that OVC um, is really looking for ways to enhance victims 
victims' rights and services for all victims across the United States. Um, they are located within the Department of Justice, and they are the agency actually charged with administering the Crime Victims Fund, um, which is very important because it's that fund that supports funding in both victim compensation and victim assistance programs in every U.S. state and territory. And it also supports training, technical assistance, and other programs really to help improve service um, to support victims of crimes um, wherever they occur in the United States. Um, it's uh, important to note that the funds are also distributed to federal agencies who provide services to victims and you know, come to mind like you know, vic the FBI victim assistance and those victim advocates that work in US attorney's offices um, some of the money goes to support model practices, but most of the crime victim fund money gets funneled to states, and that is what then in turn distributes grants to local victim service programs who provide direct services and support to victims of crime. So I think it's really helpful today for our conversation, um, the context for listeners to know that OVC also provides grants that support preparedness, response, and recovery that is really focused on assisting victims impacted by incidents of mass violence. And that's part of the work that Diane does and part of the work that Tara does. So when we're chatting about victims, technically the definition of a victim really refers to someone who's been injured by criminal acts of perpetrators. But in a broader sense and doing the work of victim assistance, we tend to think of it as someone who's experienced either mental, physical, financial, social, emotional, or spiritual harm as a result of a crime committed on, on, on them or their property. Um, when we're talking about victimization, it's really important to remember that family members, significant others, community members um, may be impacted indirectly, um, and we refer to those folks as secondary victims. So if we think about the impact of a crime as a pebble dropped into a pond, there are always a number of other people who are affected by that ripple effect. So I think it's helpful to think about primary victims and secondary victims to include those family members, significant others, community members, and um, other people that may just be indirectly impacted by a crime, which includes incidents of mass violence, of course. Thanks for, for that overview, Victoria, and that, that visual. I think that's really uh, helpful for folks to be able to picture what we were talking about with victims. So, so knowing that there are lots of crimes that impact victims, can you define what we mean by mass violence and domestic terrorism? I wish I could, Diane. Um, <laughs> it's not really a, a universal definition of mass violence, um, but there are a number of definitions which sometimes can be part of the challenge when we talk about mass violence and responding to mass violence. Um, so OVC um, has a definition of terrorism and mass violence, and that definition is an intentional violent criminal act that results in physical, emotional, or psychological injury to a sufficiently large number of people to significantly increase the burden of victim assistance and compensation for the responding jurisdiction. Now, the FBI does not technically have a definition of mass violence, um, but we often see the term mass murdered, mass murder as uh, 
being defined generally as multiple homicide incidents in which three or more victims are murdered within one event and in one or more locations in close geographical proximity. Um, and there are some caveats to that definition. Doesn't include situations where perpetrators may kill family members or situations where homicide occurs as part of another crime. So you can see there's not really one neat, tidy definition of uh, mass violence. Um, and then we start talking about more popular definitions um, and recognizing that mass violence um, at a community level um, also has an impact that that you know that community level violence um, can leave a large number of people injured or dead and may occur across a community and those incidents may not be related. I'm primarily referring to gun violence experienced by communities. Um, unfortunately, we often see in the media you know, shootings that occur at house parties where a large number of people are injured or, um, you know, uh, and uh, are, are killed uh, by that sort of violence. So um, and each of those incidents obviously leaves behind lots of victims and survivors. And what we're seeing is that over time, this is really changing the focus and the expectation of uh, both the response and the services that are available. Um, because what will often happen is that um, perhaps a community that's impacted by a more traditional mass violence incident um, will have um, an influx of services and uh, resources. Um, and those community level um, incidents perhaps don't have the same level of resources and support. Um, and community violence, just like mass violence, is unpredictable and really can disturb, you know, kind of that sense of order that we live with in, in our world. Um, I think it's really important to also to think about that you don't have to have casualties for an incident to traumatize a community. It really is about the impact of that uh, event on a community. And then the definition of mass violence is further compl complicated by um, what the media refers to. Um, you know, so that makes it difficult for tracking, makes it difficult to um, really identify and provide continuity in terms of research and that sort of uh, follow up. Um, and uh, the, the one thing that is probably consistent from community community unfortunately is that school shootings um, are still school shootings um, regardless of where they're occurring um, so that is unfortunately one consistent factor uh, thanks Victoria uh, I think you already addressed frequency in your comments so um, we might come back to that if there's something more to talk about there uh, Tara let's bring you in here tell us why do we need to plan specifically for a mass violence response and, and how is a mass violence response different than another response? So thank you for bringing me in and Victoria, thank you for setting the stage so beautifully for this um, conversation. Um, so how is mass violence different and why do we need to have a specific plan? Um, it's a great question. It's one that's asked by many, many communities um, because most communities have um, all hazard plans or they have plans to um, to to work with sort of the the sort of normal big things that happen in communities. Um, but why do we need to plan for something bigger than that? And I think the the 
biggest thing is that it's bigger. Um, I know I've used that word a few times, but size and scope is really important to remember in terms of why these incidents really tax a community. So part of what we're looking at is, yes, the, the, the impact on victims, the impact on the community, but we're also looking at the impact on services and what services need to continue to happen at the same time as you are managing a very large incident that happened in your community. So size and scope are going to be uh, major driving factors in how you need to plan and what you need to think about differently. We'll get into more of those specifics as we go on and definitely in our second episode we will get into more of those specifics about what are the the really key things to, to think about in terms of specifics to planning. But size and scope in general are two really big things to remember. The other thing to remember is that criminal intent is behind mass violence and domestic terrorism. And it is not the case if, if it's a hurricane or a tornado or flooding or something like that, which may also have a large number of deaths and, and other casualties, injuries, and, and things like that related to it. But the intention of harm lays a groundwork during an event of mass violence or domestic terrorism that shakes an entire community. So, and that community, by the way, can be, um, you know, community of Newtown, Connecticut, um, but also that shooting of that, that killed 20 children impacted the community of the world at large, really, in many ways. So when you think about that intention of harm, it really impacts across the board. And there are different things that need to happen, not just for direct or primary and secondary um, victims who you're, you're dealing with on the ground, but the community at large that you are dealing with. Um, when we look at the norms that we all function under every day, um, we do things like get in our cars, drive on roads, go to the grocery store, send our children to school, go to work, um, you know, take walks outside, all of those things, which are really the norms of a society and the norms of people functioning together. When you have intentional harm that brings about mass violence, domestic terrorism of some dimension, that foundation gets rocked. And because of that, the ripple effect that, sh that Victoria was talking about um, really intensifies. So instead of kind of a pebble going into a pond, sometimes it's like a huge rock going into a pond or a huge pillar of stone going into a pond. So the ripple effects really continue um, and can be very, very big as it moves away from that immediate impact. And it impacts how people do choose to do things like send their children to school or are they able to go to the grocery store without fearing that they're going to get shot while at the grocery store, those kinds of things. So the foundations of everything gets rocked. That means people behave differently and we need plans to help them figure out how to behave closer to that norm that they used to have. And so part of the, the long-term planning that we do is helping communities get back to a sense where the level of fear is decreased. It's very hard to do if you haven't thought about it before an event. So planning, 
even if you're hope planning to if you're planning for something that you hope never happens that planning is going to positively impact um, how you manage all of these different kinds of things. Um, there is a criminal component to this, and many plans that are written by emergency managers um, don't take into account criminal intent, criminal um, justice, um, things that have to happen, everything from um, finding a perpetrator, arresting them, what that means for victims, are there sentencing sorry, before sentencing, are there um, hearings they have to go to, arraignments, um, what, does the, what is that like for the people who are directly impacted by it? So the criminal intent adds something to this, as does um, that, that criminality um, in terms of giving us access to certain services. And Victoria talked some about this with the, um, the Crime Victims Fund funding victim advocacy and victim compensation in states. Those are things that are available due to the criminal nature of mass violence and domestic terrorism. And they are something that need to be incorporated into the emergency management plans and the relationships need to be there prior to something happen, happening so that you don't have um, silos of people working sort of tactically in operations to um, uh, stabilize the incident itself and then a different silo that's dealing with uh, the victims or the people who are directly impacted. Those need to be really interwoven so that they are responsive to what they need to be responsive to. Um, I think the other thing we really need to look at is the scope of services that are needed for first responders. So we know that communities plan for um, responders having some challenges with larger critical incidents and they may have peer teams and they may have teams that that um, help people process incidents after they happen and they may have all of those things in place. What we have seen with mass violence situations is that those services need to be more robust than your everyday services. Um, we had in Las Vegas in particular, um, there were um, many, many, many calls going to the lead of the peer team in Las Vegas. And she was very overwhelmed. She was very, very overwhelmed. Normally she has um, a couple of teams that can function at the same time, but she was being asked to potentially run um, debriefings for um, 10 to 12 groups a day, plus their families. So we look at that and the need for that really robust response is something you need to pre-plan and you need to think about how do we do that and what kind of mutual aid can we use between our city and other cities that may be close by that can support us in those kinds of things. Um, the other thing to know about in terms of the responder piece is that the responders are often not always on duty when they're responding to mass violence. These incidents are so big 
that they draw people in. So people will deploy, self-deploy from home sometimes. Sometimes they are in attendance at the festival or the concert or the Christmas parade as in Waukesha, um, Wisconsin. They're, um, so their, their interaction is not always as their primary role as a first responder. They may be in proximity to their families and being shot at. They may be in proximity to their families and be giving care to others who have been shot or who have other types of injuries. So, so all of that first responder care is something that we want to try to help communities um, develop well ahead of time so that they have the robust response that they would need from that. Thanks, Tara. That's a, a great overview. Um, I want to bring Victoria back in here now and, and ask both of you to touch on, with everything that we've just discussed um, as kind of our foundation, what does it mean? Um, what does that mean, rather, for what is needed in response to mass violence? Thanks, Diane. Um, I'll, I'll lead here, and I'd just like to circle back to something um, that Tara said as she was as she was talking. Um, it reminded me to remind uh, all our listeners here um, to keep in mind that um, that when we're talking about responders and we're talking about folks in community responding, um, we are often talking about people working with people who are experiencing trauma, right? Um, so planning. Um, can really be helpful uh, and practice can be really be helpful uh, so that those roles and expectations and responses um, are kind of thought through beforehand um, and might help uh, with uh, with the, the responders who, you know, are experiencing perhaps their own trauma because their families are being impacted. Um, this, this doesn't, these sorts of incidents are not, um, you know, just happening to uh, a community and then, you know, everybody from outside is coming in to help out. Um, often it's the people from the community responding to the community. So I think that's a really important point that we keep front and center as well. Um, I think uh, prediction, pre preparation and planning, Tara talked beautiful about the beautifully about the, the importance of planning. Um, and I know Diane, Tara, um, and perhaps some of our listeners can relate to, um, you know, when we are working with communities who have been affected by mass violence, quite often what we hear is that they didn't expect it to happen here. And, and what we know, it's not a matter of uh, if, it's a matter of when. Um, so planning is really, really a critical um, part of that preparation. Um, and predicting for people um, what what they can anticipate they may have to do in the aftermath of uh, of a mass violence incident. I think that when we talk about uh, victim care, um, and we're talking about both direct and indirect victims, when we think about victim assistance, we have to think about what is in place now. And as we're thinking about planning and preparing to respond to mass violence. We have to recognize that those agencies are already very, very busy, and some of them may already have waiting lists. Um, so they're going to be quickly overwhelmed by trying to provide ongoing support um, to a community impacted by mass violence. And victims of other crimes, um, the crimes that happened the day before and the crimes that happened the day after the mass violence incidents, are still going to need 
support and services and assistance. So we need to plan to support those victims, the victims that are impacted by the mass violence event, the secondary victims, thinking back to that ripple effect we mentioned earlier. And I have such a visual now that Tara said about dropping a huge boulder into that pond. Um, and victim compensation is a really important part of planning and preparation. Um, generally speaking, if folks are not familiar with victim compensation, these are state programs that reimburse eligible victims for out-of-pocket expenses related to their victimization. But it's really important to know that eligibility varies greatly um, from state to state. So for instance, in some states, victims who do not have physical injuries may not be eligible for any type of crime victim compensation. While in other states, they might be eligible for things like counseling and other supportive services. And for those compensation programs to be really thinking proactively as part of the planning process about how to make the, the process of even applying for crime victim compensation more streamlined, more accessible, and easier after an incident of mass violence is helpful. The other thing that we need to think about as part of the planning and the preparation is this idea that there are many pathways to services. So there's this wrong, no wrong door approach into finding services and support and recognizing that services and support may look different um, as well. Um, some victims and survivors may want to join a more traditional kind of support group sort of approach, um, but others may prefer yoga or more informal get togethers. Um, so it's about offering as many open doors as possible um, for, for finding services and support. I think it's really important here to talk about too that we, we recognize that recovery is not linear. So planning that those pathways may have to change over time, evolve a little bit. So what works at one point in time may need to be changed at a later point. And it can really help planning efforts to know this and anticipate this. Tara, over to you. Sure, thank you, Victoria. Um, and I would add to that 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 understanding the um, the the fact that you will have or communities will have reactions for an extended period of time. You know, this is huge. These these events of mass violence are huge, and so what the services need to be there for an extended period of times, which sometimes taxes a community um, uh, it, in and of itself, um, but also that that a lot of those services are those non-traditional services, as Victoria said, that give people information. And so we're really looking at a lot of people who are impacted and very intensely impacted but are not necessarily um, in need of mental health or substance abuse treatment at any at any moment. They may really just need support and information. Part of what we really have a lot happen after this in the immediate aftermath, but then also the long-term aftermath is um, what is called psychological first aid. And it really looks at helping to predict for people what, they can expect from themselves and those around them when something like this happens. And psych first aid is not something that is done only by licensed 
providers. Psych first aid, everyone, everyone listening to this um, can provide psych first aid. And frankly, you probably do already to many of the people that you um, love and care about um, because it's really about helping them to figure out how they can best respond to their, their internal reactions. So part of what we need to do is help to um, not pathologize all of these things that are happening, but support people through what we're really considering predictable reactions. So when Victoria talks about no wrong door and how things have to change over time, um, absolutely true. And the information changes a little bit over time, but it needs to be available all along the way. So helping to figure out how do we set up systems ahead of time that will really help a community and individuals within that community to get this information as quickly as possible. So we have the ability to, many of us, go on Google and find information about what are the predictable reactions. That's well and good, but then trying to figure out how do you put that into a, a way to um, to get it into community messaging, to get it out to people so that we can say to them, you know what, we get it. We get that you're having a hard time sleeping or that you're, um, you know, that, that you don't have as much patience with your children or all of those kinds of things. We can, we can normalize that. So planning gives us the ability to be able to think ahead of time, what are we going to need? And we know, we know that that's going to be needed. So preload that, you know, find a place to put that in your community and get it into the hands of the right people to get it out there. Again, the more we put out the information, the more people can start to predict their own reactions. And what we know is from a, a mental health standpoint, that the more we can predict how we are going to react and we can normalize, yes, that's happening to a lot of people out here, um, the less we are going to think that we are broken. And that means that I can function better. I may be having a really hard time, but if I think I'm not broken by this, but I'm just having what is a predictable reaction, that changes how I manage moving forward. It changes for me. It changes for my family. It changes for um, responders, for providers. It changes for a lot of people. So really looking at community me messaging and interventions centered around this predictability and helping communities and individuals understand that is really um, the bulk of a lot of what we do in the aftermath of these events. And a lot of that can be pre-planned. So Diane, I'm gonna hand it back to you um, to, to start to talk about some of the challenges that we see in these responses, and then you can throw it back to me when you're done. Okay, great. I think um, maybe you talked a little bit about the um, the challenges in the response is really only the beginning of the challenges um, because with there is a criminal case, we've got a lot of points within the criminal justice system where uh, victims and survivors uh, will need support and services. Uh, so as we've talked about these challenges uh, and keeping them in mind, let's talk about the essential role of planning. Uh, you may recall that I mentioned when we first started the podcast today that the greatest benefit to planning is that it will minimize the chaos of an incident for everyone. And as Victoria just said, it isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when a mass violence incident will happen. 
happen in a community. And that is something I have heard more often than I can can count uh, when I've talked to leaders who are interested in creating their plan. They realize that there really is uh, almost no place to hide, that it is a matter of when it will happen in their community and they want to be prepared. Sarah, do you want to take us through some of the uh, the issues about how um, the challenges can be um, uh, ameliorated with uh, with planning? Sure. Um, at, so part of what we need to remember, and this is really I'm speaking to um, the leaders who are listening to this call and leaders of emergency management, law enforcement, fire, EMS, dispatch, hospitals, any at the medical examiner, coroners, that part of what happens to a community very quickly, by the way, after something like this happens, is that discussions start about the effectiveness of the response and the confidence that the community has that that response is going to, the next response is going to be effective or if they're gonna be able to do it well. What we start to see is that one of the challenges is after an event like this is we see people um, starting to leave communities. And that means that homeowners start to leave. They decide this is not a safe community. We want to move somewhere else. Um, we see students being pulled from schools. And sometimes those students are being taken out and put into private or charter schools within the same community. And sometimes we're seeing them being taken out and families are moving to get to what they're hoping are safer schools. Um, and we see businesses either not coming or leaving communities. And when we talk to all of these, the homeowners, the parents, the business owners, about what it is that they're they're sort of what's part of what are they calculating to to figure out if they're staying or going, a lot of it comes back to we don't have confidence in the response that happened, or we don't have confidence that the next one will be any different. So part of what we've seen over time is that pre-planning gives two answers to that challenge in particular. One is that you can, um, the more you plan and the more you think about the specifics that need to happen moving forward after a mass violence event, um, the more concrete and effective that plan is going to be. Um, at, you know, the difference between, oh, we'll have to take care of victims and, in order to take care of victims, we need to engage victim advocates and victim compensation and behavioral health folks and spiritual care folks. And so it's the difference between sort of having a, a general plan and having a very specific plan. That kind of specificity inc increases effectiveness and therefore increases confidence in the people in the community who are there in that response and what is coming later. Um, you also have people who um, now have talked to each other ahead of time, and we've said this a bunch of times, all three of us so far, about relationships and the relationships that are needed to uh, really be effective in these responses. And those relationships only happen if you do this planning. As I said before, in a normal everyday world in a community, the fire chief is not necessarily talking to um, the, the victim advocates. 
um, or they're not necessarily talking to the, um, the mental health or spiritual care folks who might come in to support people. So that when something happens and everyone's attempting to meet each other at that moment and work together, that becomes really challenging. So what planning does for you is it front loads all of those relationships. So now you have people who know each other. And even if personnel change, there are there's now a history of planning together and working together. And that really leads to um, a more effective and more confidence building response um, that really um, will leave everybody, again, homeowners, businesses, students in your schools, teachers in your schools, even responders themselves. Um, what we know is after many mass violence events, we have responders leaving their departments sometimes and sometimes leaving the, the field altogether. Um, and front-loading information for them and planning ahead of time and having supports all pre-existing an event like this really can help to solidify who you have in your community, get people to stay there and continue to work together as opposed to just starting to work together at that moment of crisis, which is always a challenge. Tara, Thanks, can Sarah. I piggyback on something that you just uh, that you just said sure. about relationships? It it was uh, making me think about um, my time as a young advocate um, joining a tabletop uh, exercise in my community and, and feeling like I had been dropped into another planet. Um, you know that was very different from my experience of working as a victim advocate, um, different language, different roles. And I'm so glad thinking back that I had an opportunity, as you said, to forge those relationships, figure out my role, figure out the language that was used before we had to be on site together, that I had an I had an arena to practice, so to speak, and it was really, really valuable for me. Um, you talking made me think about when when um, we showed up, and we're going to talk more about the Boston Marathon in a minute, but when we showed up in Boston, we being a number of different agencies who needed to respond, we had challenges. We're going to get into that in a minute. But one of the things that we didn't have at that moment was um, a challenge in our relationships with each other. So we're talking about um, victim advocates. We're talking about the FBI Victim Service Division. We're talking about the American Red Cross, some mental health people, um, the uniform public health folks. We had all just come off forging those relationships in Newtown at the Sandy Hook shooting response. And we didn't know each other there, or many of us didn't know each other there. But when we when we left Newtown, that was a core that had done this work together, had figured it out very quickly with each other. And when we arrived in Boston, we sort of were so far ahead of where we had been in Newtown because we all knew each other. And we all knew how each other was gonna work and what needed to happen and how we were gonna connect to each other. And it made such a difference in that unit in Boston. Okay, so can I piggyback off of both of you? <laughs> uh, 
a couple of thoughts. Um, one is that Victoria touched on this earlier about exercising. And, and Victoria, you just shared what it was like to be dropped into an exercise and not really knowing anybody. That is a really critical part of the planning. You can't just create a plan and put it on a shelf. And a lot of folks out there listening who are emergency managers or first responders, you understand the need to plan and exercise those plans. So just reiterating that for everybody out there, you can create a plan, but then you need to review it regularly and and exercise it. And that helps build those relationships that, that we've been talking about. And the other thing I wanted to touch on is that we've been talking about first responders and Tara, you mentioned in Las Vegas, and I just want to say we need to broaden who we think of as first responders because some of our, our consultants who were out there um, learned that the, the nurses that were on duty at many of the hospitals there left their profession after that evening, and that was even with them planning and having a plan in place. So really being able to think about the, the worst case scenario that you can and try and make sure you have services in place for um, you know keeping those very valued employees in their position so they can continue helping folks. And then the only other thing I wanted to, to touch on with something that um, Tara said was, you know, we have first responders leaving after the Virginia Tech shooting in 2007 and they just had their 15-year uh, commemoration. There's been a complete turnover in the university uh, security force there. And that is just not recent. It happened, you know, over a few years after the incident. So by not taking care of your first responders, you lose a lot of talent and expertise on your um, departments. Any more piggybacking before we go on? One more piggyback. I'm okay. going to throw in there, and we're going to talk about resources, and some of them will be listed. But in terms of, of resources, um, my program, the ICPTTA program, has a guide for exercising um, that will give you scenario extensions for existing exercises that include the victim services pieces so that you can have it sort of seamlessly go from the exercise you are already planning and add on some victim services components and we we have in there the you know the objectives and injects and all of those kinds of things so there are resources out there in terms of uh, planning and exercising to get you through that point um, so that you can do that with, um, you know, understanding sort of what the key challenges are going to be because the injects in that guide are um, really highlight the key challenges that we see when we go out. Thanks for, for plugging the resources, Tara. Mm -hmm. um, on the page where you have found this podcast, we will have a list of different resources that you can uh, reach out to and, and explore. Uh, I'd like to thank Victoria and Tara for sharing their insights with us today. Uh, I wanted to give you a little bit of a teaser for our next podcast. We're going to um, start kind of uh, delving into real life examples. And Tara mentioned the Boston Marathon. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what the uh, our listeners will hear in our next podcast? Sure, absolutely. So in Boston, when the marathon happens, there is an extensive plan and extensive exercising actually about tactically what is going to happen um, during the marathon. And it's everything from something happening on the route 
but also if there happens to be a house fire at the same time. Um, there's a lot of planning that goes into all of that, and that planning have ex has existed for a long time. There are 10 plus hospitals in the Boston area. There's planning among them if there um, are issues, what, what the hospitals are going to do um, in, in response. What we found after the Boston Marathon bombing was that all of that planning actually worked pretty well. What didn't enter into any of that planning was anything about victim assistance and victim services and taking care of families and taking care of um, people who were impacted and maybe didn't have an, a physical injury but had an, an emotional injury. And so looking at, at what was attempted immediately by the people who were already in charge and then knowing what really needed to happen and how that all worked is actually how we're going to start the next podcast. Um, and um, what that really meant was the uniqueness of the services that were needed um, were not understood by the city. Um, who should be involved was not understood, um, the extent of services that were needed in that moment. Um, and again, we're going to talk more about that and what that took um, to sort of get all of that going. And, and eventually it was successful, but it really was a sort of Herculean effort to get it off the ground. So that's where we're going to start next podcast. So I'll hand it back to Diane. Thanks, Tara, and that's a great teaser. Uh, I'd like to thank Tara and Victoria again for sharing their, their knowledge and thoughts and experience with us. I hope everyone will join us for our next podcast and have a great day. Bye.